0: Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6 today, Genesis chapter 6. We're continuing on our series, We you, know, you often don't, I mean, we don't normally title our series because it's usually a Bible book, but uh, so we've titled this series, since this is topical, as the Gospel in Genesis 1 through 11, and so this morning we're going to be looking at the Gospel in the antediluvian world. Anybody know what that word means? Antidiluvian. It's a big word. What's that? Before the, before the flood, right. That's a fancy that's a fancy word. Anti or anti-A-N-T-E, diluvian. There's a reference to the time before the flood. And so we're going to look at the gospel from Genesis chapter 6 or see how Genesis chapter 6 applies, or I'm sorry, how the gospel applies to Genesis chapter 6, the first 12 verses. This is probably one of the most, if not the most, controversial events in the Bible. It causes a lot of confusion, a lot of questions. You'll see why here in a little bit. But if you first start by looking at Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, Genesis verse four twenty-six, 26, you see an interesting statement. That after Seth is born... Remember, this is after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. This is after Cain had killed Abel, and then Adam and Eve have another child. Verse twenty-six of chapter four. That son is Seth, and then when Seth has a son, look at what it says. Verse twenty-six of chapter four. To Seth, to him also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So that's how it all sort of starts. So we get some good news after two rather poor events with the fall, the bringing of sin, death, disease, and destruction into creation. And then to the killing of Abel by Cain. And so then here we get some good news that after the first child of Seth was born, men began to call in the name of the Lord problem is that by the time we get to chapter 6 just essentially one chapter later because chapter that's at the very end of chapter 4 we have chapter 5 we get these genealogies but the very next event we see is the flood coming up in chapters 6 7 and 8 and so we get to the beginning of chapter 6 and everything has now changed so we go from this the men began to call on the name of the Lord to what we now read in Genesis chapter 6, 1-12. through 12. Let me go ahead and read that and then we'll come back and work our way through it. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years." The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they were born children er, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Then the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Before we can dive into our passage and get to the primary focus, which is where do we see the gospel in this, I would imagine already in your heads you're asking two questions because there's two questions always asked about this chapter. The first one is who are the sons of God here and who are the Nephilim? Everybody wants to know. So I'm going to get that out of the way so that we can get to the bulk of our passage here, but it'll take, take some time to go through that. Um, if we spent the time necessary to probably go through this and digest this adequately, it would be a whole entire morning. Um, so I'm going to try to summarize what's kind of happening here, who the sons of God are and who the Nephilim are. But I'll be real frank. After spending a few days working through this and putting my notes together and everything else, um, I came across an article by Bodie Hodge. He happens to be a speaker with Answers in Genesis. And he wrote a fantastic article on this. And I looked at it and I kind of went, crud. All that time I wasted when I could have just used his notes. So this morning I'm going to use just his notes because he did a much better job of, I think, being concise than what I did. Um, I put all my notes up online. So if you go to our website, you look at the teaching section, Pull the notes up. There'll be a link there to actually to his article. So you can go read more in depth on his article. He does a great job. I don't necessarily agree 100% with him, but I also don't agree 100% with Ken Ham on who the Nephilim are. And it's because there's so much controversy and it's not an easy thing to work through, but he does a great job of giving us pretty much what most of the options are for for who the sons of God are and who the Nephilim are and and what's going on. But let me summarize for you, because I do align with, with Bodhi on the four different categories, what the options are. So... The question we want to ask is first, who are the sons of God? If you go back to verses 1 and 2, it says this. Now, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. So we basically have men multiplying on the face of the earth, doing exactly what God had commanded Adam and Eve to do. Um, By the time we get here, we're about seven generations out from Adam. So this has probably been a span of about 1,400 years or so, 1,500 years approximately. So over that time, men obviously began to multiply on the face of the earth. And it says, Daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So there's four primary views on who the sons of God are here. The first one is the most popular view, and it's that the sons of God are fallen angels who had basically had sexual relations with. Females, human females on earth, and ultimately then produced what I could best describe as half-human, half-angel, or half-demon creatures. That is, believe it or not, the most popular view on this particular passage. Um, Genesis 1, if you think about it though, states something very specific, which is why I don't believe this is a good view. Genesis chapter 1, if you go back there with me, there's something interesting about God's creation, and it's the fact that everything multiplies after its own kind. Okay? Genesis 1 verse 11. Then God said, Let the earth spout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit, what? After their kind with seed in them, and it was so. Jump down to verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them, after their kind, and God saw that it was good. Jump down to verse 21. God created the great sea monsters, and every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. How about verse 24? Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. Verse 25 repeats the same thing. God made beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. So what do we learn about God's creation? Everything multiplies after its own kind. You cannot take a frog and mate it with a horse. It does not work. Everything multiplies after its own kind. Now, it doesn't say that specifically about humans when we get to that discussion, but it is to be assumed that that is the case because everything up to this point has indicated everything that God creates multiplies after its own kind, from plants to animals, even to humans. So I would say that probably the biggest con with this view that what was being produced here were somehow angels having relations with human beings and creating these half-breeds, half-demonic, half-human creatures. I think the biggest issue with that is scriptures indicate that humans would multiply after their own kind. There's no indication anywhere in scripture that angels can mate with humans fact at one point Jesus said that when we die and we go to heaven we are like the angels and that there's no marriage implying they don't multiply and procreate the angelic kinds nowhere in scripture are indicated can multiply everything God created here on earth can multiply there's no indication that those in the angelic realm can actually multiply so that's the first problem I have with that view the second view is that the sons of God were fallen angels who possessed human beings and carried out the desires. Certainly more probable than the first, right, because we know scripturally speaking that demons can possess human beings and can take over their bodies. We see that in the New Testament. We don't see that much in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament we we see it quite a bit. In fact, one man was possessed by legion, hundreds, thousands of demons and so they can take over human flesh I believe that's what we see in the garden when the serpent tempts Eve was probably Satan taking the form of a snake or a serpent or possessing a serpent we know that pigs or that Jesus had cast demons into the pigs who then ran off the cliff so we know that demons can possess humans and can possess animals so this view is more probable than the one that we started with. So that's a second view. Third view is that the sons of God refers to the descendants of Seth and the daughters of men refers to the descendants of Cain. Now this is the second most popular view. It's actually the view of Ken Ham and some other creation creationists. I look at it as more of a rec- rescue mechanism. What I mean by that is to come up with something to try to make sense out of this passage. And the reason I say that is because There's really nothing in the scriptures that suggest that Seth's line was the holy line and that Cain's line was the sinful line and somehow God was upset because men from Seth's line married women from Cain's line. There's nothing really in the scriptures that suggests that. Now, we do have, and this is the the evidence they'll use, chapter 4, verse 26, this comment about Seth's son, Then the men began to worship God. Well, but it doesn't say that only Seth's line worshipped. It just simply said that it was after Seth had his child that men began to then call upon the name of the Lord. That seems to be a general reference to mankind on the earth, not just Seth's line. They'll also argue that because you have um, Enosh, you have Enoch, you have Noah in Seth's line, that that seems to give evidence that Seth's line was the godly line. But it doesn't really tell us that Cain's line was the sinful line. So I don't... There's not much not much scriptural evidence that that the sons of God are only men from Seth's line and that only the daughters of men those are only from Cain's line and somehow God was upset that they were somehow marrying so again, we're lacking biblical evidence for that so again, I call it a rescue mechanism can't say it's wrong but a rescue mechanism is sort of something you come up with philosophically to rescue the text from a difficult situation and, um, both sides do that oftentimes. You see that sometimes in creation circles, both for young earth creationists and old earth creationists. I was, I've been having an online discussion, debate, if you will, with a gentleman, um, in a creation forum I'm a part of. It's rather interesting because he wanted to know somebody posed a very good question. I thought it was timely. Is the gospel impacted if you have an old earth view? And I argued that it is, because the first 11 chapters of Genesis, if they're not seen as historical, literal, chronological events then we have a problem with what happens in the New Testament because every reference to those things in the New Testament treats them as a historical reference a real, literal thing and so I responded just very graciously back that yes, here's why and I gave some examples of why this particular individual responded back and the whole entire debate he kept saying, but you're not providing me a scriptural evidence. But I was quoting scripture and showing him in the scriptures. So well, this is what it says. And he was responding back with purely philosophical arguments, like, well, but there had to be death before the fall because if you ate plants, that kills them. And those plants would have had bacteria on them and you're killing it when you They would have had insects on it and you would kill it when you eat it. And I could... And he kept accusing me of not providing text. I kept saying, but all you're giving me back are these philosophical arguments. Everything you've provided is a rescue mechanism. You're trying to rescue the text from a literal view and treat it as something that's more mythical. And so you come up with all these philosophical arguments. Those are rescue mechanisms. You're trying to rescue the text because you don't like what the text says. So you've got to rescue it. And he kept coming up. He couldn't provide me with a single biblical argument or scriptural argument as to why there was death before the fall. So I kind of view this third view that way, meaning even though it's the second most popular view and people that I know that I respect hold to this view, I just don't think there's much biblical evidence for it. I think it's more of a philosophical argument. The fourth and final view is similar to the previous one, but it limits the sons of God, or it doesn't limit the sons of God to Seth. In other words, another way to read this is that the sons of God are simply godly men. Just simply godly men and that the daughters of men are ungodly women. That's another viewpoint. And in essence, what it basically says is that godly men began to look at the women that were on the earth, began to be basically... Um, Drawn to them physically, they began to lust after them physically, and they began to take as many women as they wanted to, so it may be a reference to polygamy. Because the verse says they took women for themselves, whomever they chose. And so another popular view is that sons of God simply means that what happened is, as men and women were multiplying on the face of the earth, You had these godly men that started to call on the name of the Lord, as it says in 4.26. But over time, godly men began to abandon those values and instead of simply marrying women based on the quality of their love for God and for other things, began to lust after them, began to get engaged in polygamy, and began to take as many wives as they wanted to. And that led ultimately to the corruption. And you know, there's some historical evidence that would support that in the sense that if you look historically at many of your big dynasties, country dynasties and other things like the Roman Empire and other things, there's some evidence that the breakdown of the family unit oftentimes precedes the collapse of their culture and society. And so some would argue that's what you see here, that the family unit was shattered and broken because they began to engage in basically sex outside of marriage, sex within marriage with multiple women, polygamy, you name it. Um, so there, there, there's probably some validity to that view. So what does that leave us with? You're, gonna, you're looking at me now and saying, okay, so four different views, neither, neither one of these views is a great view. I'll, I'll tell you what my position is on it here. If you really want to know, I lean towards the fallen angels possessing humans view. Amen. And the reason I do that is primarily because you've got two places in the New Testament that may very well be allusions to this, So I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. If you look at verse 1 starting in chapter 2 of 2 Peter he's talking about false teachers and false prophets here notice what he says but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly induce destructive heresies even denying the master who brought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves many will follow their, sens- their sensuality and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned and their greed they will, or in their greed they will exploit you with false words their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep now look at what he does here Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, and cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, which is a reference to the antediluvian, antediluvian world, but preserved Noah, the preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he contended... or or condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing the ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives after them. And if he rescued Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their evil... I'll leave it there. But there's a reference here to God at some time in the past... Basically, taking these angels who had sinned and condemning them to hell. Now, what's interesting about that is the idea of condemning them to hell, or actually it says here that um, cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness. The fact that God took those angels and put them into hell. We know that not all angels biblically are in hell right now, but some of them are. And so some would say these particular angels here that were cast into hell were the angels that had done what we see in the anti deluvian world and that God had judged them and put them into hell, but other angels who did not commit those things are those that are left here. Those fallen angels are still left here now to torment souls. Does that make sense? Am I losing some? Anybody? Now, it's a bit of a stretch, a bit of a, a jump, but the reason they think that is because the reference here to Noah and the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, turn to Jude. We get a little bit better picture if you go to Jude chapter 1. Jude chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Listen to what Jude does. Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, He has kept in eternal bonds. In other words, has cast them into hell, just like Peter says, under darkness for judgment of the great day. They are waiting to be judged. But they're currently in bonds in darkness. Hell. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah did and the cities around them since they in the same way as these indulged in, and here's what's interesting, in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Notice he correlates... The angels, the fallen angels, with what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, going after strange flesh. Involving themselves in great immorality. And went after strange flesh and exhibited as an example, as undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude and Peter both seem to make allusions to angels leaving their proper abode and doing something with humans described as sexual immorality now again how do we deal with that do we assume that angels can then copulate with humans and produce offspring that seems to violate the rest of the scriptures and the rule of interpretation says that you take the face value reading of something and you change it if you have to if there's other compelling reasons in the scripture to force you to change it so what I'm saying is this you read this and it seems to suggest in Genesis chapter 6 that angels produced offspring with humans. That's a face value reading of it. Okay, But that conflicts with what we know about how things recreate and what Genesis 1 teaches. So we have to look for another alternative interpretation. We come to Jude. We come to Second Peter, which seems to suggest the same thing, that angels left their abode and did something with humans. It appears to be an allusion back to Genesis 6. But again, that would conflict... With what we see in Genesis chapter 1 with things only being able to procreate after their own kind, but also what Jesus says about being like angels in heaven who don't get married, don't do, obviously don't have sexual intercourse. Alright? So I think the best alternative is what we do see in the rest of scripture is that angels can possess humans and take over their bodies and do ungodly things. I think that's probably the best alternative that we have when we look at the four different options now you'll notice that it doesn't explicitly say in our Jude passage or our second Peter passage that they engaged in that they were able to have intercourse with but it says as they left those abodes they engaged themselves in sexual morality we could certainly understand that if these are angels that possessed humans and then used those humans to continue engaging in sexual morality and they may have been a cause of Polygamy, too. We don't know. So, that's my personal conviction, I'll call it. Is it something I would die on? No. But I think when we look at the different alternatives, I think it's probably the most probable alternative when we understand the rest of the scriptures. I don't think there's any problem with that. Now, again, Ken Ham and some others would take the Sethian view. Um, I myself struggle with that because I don't think there's enough biblical evidence, but I think there's enough biblical evidence that the possession theory is the one that probably makes the most sense. So that leaves us with who were the Nephilim then? Who were the Nephilim? Look at verse 4 again of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So, who are these Nephilim? The exact word, we're not really sure what the meaning is. Different understandings in some instances. Some believe it refers to giants. Others refer to to it as the fallen ones, possibly mighty warriors. The etymology of the word is a little bit difficult. Um, I think it's probably more closely aligned with fallen ones or giants, but um, there's a lot of debate about that. Um, The ancient Hebrew understanding, the way that the Jews understood this, is that it was simply another word for giants. And I think sometimes we have to um, rely heavily on um, an ancient understanding of words because they were a lot closer than we were. And when when we look at much of the writings by by, um, Jewish historians and and theologians, the general thought was that Nephilim was simply a reference to giants. That's the view that I take. Um, Some of your English translations will translate it that way. I don't know if anybody has a version here that says giants instead of Nephilim. Yeah, and that's the reason why. Um, That's probably, uh, I think, the most common um, understanding of this word, that Nephilim were simply giants. Um, We know the giants existed on the earth. If you look at Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, you can go ahead and turn there if you want to. Numbers chapter 13. We're going to see the other reference to this. Numbers chapter 13, verse 30. Remember when they sent the spies into the land and the spies came back with a bad warning and tried to prevent everybody from going into the land? Well, verse 30, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Why? Or we should all, by all means, go up and take possession of it, meaning the land, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who came or had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out saying the land through which or the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it were men of great size they're describing men of large size and then we have this note there were also or then or I'm sorry there also we saw the nephilim the sons of enoch and part of the nephilim and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight and so we were in their sight. They describe the Nephilim here, descendants of Enoch. Now, some say, well, yeah, but they're giving a report, a bad report. It's a lie, so there really weren't giants in there. There really weren't Nephilim in there, and they were simply referring, they're just saying that. But that's not real clear in the text. It says they gave a bad report, which can simply be understood as they went in, they saw that some of these men were giants, and so they came back to Israel and they just reported, we can't, we can't, we'll lose, we're like grasshoppers, there's no way we can win, that's a bad report. And so, Is it super clear that they weren't lying about the Nephilim? I take this at face value and assume that no, they went in and they saw people and they said, these are big people, they're like Goliath, and we're going to get stomped out. They had no faith, like Caleb did, that we can go in and we can destroy them. Why? Because God's on our side. And so we have this reference to the Nephilim, and this is after the flood, by the way. We have other places where the Bible reveals that there were giants. Um, there's actually a list of names from the Amorites, the Emems, the um, Zamzumans were another group, but also the Rephaim are all described in the Old Testament as giants. I'll give you some references or you can look up on your own, but Amos 2.9, Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 10, Deuteronomy 2.20, and then also chapter 3.11 and 3.13 are all references to these groups, like the Amorites, the Emems the Rephaim's, but they're all described at some point in the Bible as being men of great stature, giants. We actually have the names of some of the giants in the Old Testament. How about that old famous one? You guys all know the most famous giant of you kids? Even the adults? Who's that? Goliath, yeah. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 4, says that if you translate it into English, and you understand how cubits work, somewhere probably between 9 and 10 feet tall now there are some ancient manuscripts that change the size of the cubits but the most reliable ones indicate that he was somewhere between 9 and 10 feet tall four of Goliath's sons are also mentioned in the Old Testament 2 Samuel chapter 21 turn there 2 Samuel chapter 21 just so we don't think that maybe Goliath was a fluke 2 Samuel chapter 21 Look at verses 15 through 22. Now when the Philistines were at war against Israel, David went down and his servants with him, and they fought against the Philistines. David became weary. Then Ishbenab, who was among the descendants of the giant, that's Goliath, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze and weight, was girded with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, helped him and struck the, Philistines, the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out against us to battle, so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. Now it came about after this that there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was among the descendants of the giant. There was war with the Philistines again at Gob, and Elnon, the son of Jer, what is it, Oregim, the Bethelite, killed Goliath, the Gittite, The shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam, there was war at Gath again, and there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also had been born to the giant. When he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. The way these, these descendants of Goliath were described as if they were like Goliath in size. In fact, one of them having massive hands with six fingers and big big feet with six toes. There's also another Amorite king, the last remnant it says of the Rephaim giants. Deuteronomy chapter 3 verse 11 actually describes his bed as being 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. Now, he might have just had a big bed. <laughs> but he was part of the Raphaim, which were known to be giants, it's likely that he needed a big bed, a bed that was 13 feet long and 6 feet wide to contain his stature. So we can see throughout the Old Testament, not a lot, but there are men who are of significant size, bigger than normal men, and again, if, if we just use Goliath as our starting point, somewhere between 9 and 10 feet tall. So that's fairly significant because, you remember, they're not just tall and skinny. <laughs> they're probably much bigger and with, well, portioned. Take, you know, somebody like me, five foot eight, and scale me up to almost 10 feet tall. And I'm, I'm not just taller, but I'm bigger, stronger, wider. That's sizable. Um, now, with that in mind, I think that it's probably best to interpret Nephilim here as giants. Now, the question is... Or the giants, the nephilim, the offspring of these God, these sons of God and daughters of men. Some argue that. That's why some will say these are half demon, half humans. When they believe that the angels were actually copulating with humans. Um, but go back to that verse, if you will. Verse four again, chapter six, verse four. You notice something about this. The verse doesn't actually say that they were the offspring. What we have in Genesis. Chapter 6, verse 4, is a time marker. What I mean by that is this. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. In what days? The Nephilim were on the earth at the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1. When the daughters of men and the sons of God began to come together. They were on the earth in those days, and they were also in the earth afterwards. I believe that's a reference to after the flood. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children. Now, who was it that... And it says they bore children to them that's a reference to daughters of men the daughters of men bore children to the sons of God those the Nephilim were the mighty men of old men of renown so when you look at what's happening here I believe that Moses is simply giving his readers a marker and it's much like when we would say remember back in the day when I had this discussion with With one of my, I think it was Katie the other day. I referenced some things that it was this way back then. That's the way it was. It's a time marker. It tells us when these things occurred. Now, think about this. I'm going to propose something here. This is somewhat philosophical, it's somewhat um, opinion. If indeed the men and women prior to the flood were of much larger stature, that would become much like legend. By the time we are after the flood and and these stories are passed down. Can you imagine how you might describe to your kids what Adam and some of the others before the flood might have been like if their size was rather large? That would become almost legendary, would it not? And it would be kind of a time marker. Remember back in the day when humans were much bigger. I personally believe that Nephilim here is a reference to mankind prior to the flood. Now, I've got some other reasons why I believe that. I, I personally believe that Adam and Eve were much bigger than we are. One of the reasons I believe that is because animal life was much bigger, and we have the, we have the fossil records to prove it. I've got a great book here. It's just a coffee table book. Um, fantastic book, because what it does is it goes through... The fossil record, and what's interesting is modern animals today, we have fossil records showing that the animals that we have today were significantly larger in size pre-flood. We know that most of the fossil record comes from the flood. And animals were significantly, I'm not talking just twice the size, we're talking about sometimes ten times larger than what they are today. The fossil record indicates that, and it's not... It's not weird stories on the internet, stuff like that. Like I said, if you you can actually look through and you can see the fossil records. And so what's neat about this book here is he actually goes through and he'll show every continent. And you only just you can't probably can't see this very well. But you'll notice here, it's got a picture of a alligator, okay? In the size of a human. You've got fossils of alligators that could literally swallow a man in one single bite. So if you think about pre flood, if animals were significantly larger before the flood, is it possible that mankind was also larger before the flood? Consider this as well. What was the average lifespan of a human being before the flood? Somewhere between 8 and 900 years. Somewhere between 8 and 900 years they lived. Noah had children at age 50, or I'm sorry, at age 500. Okay? If humans were living significantly longer, even if we just look at ourselves and say, when do we hit our peak? We live maybe to 80. We stop growing at, what, about 20? We can still have kids, and, or men can have them much longer, but women typically 40 and 50. Some are about halfway through their lifetime. They're no longer able to bear children. If you just think that maybe it was very similar pre-flood, then is it possible that they continue growing for the first 200 years of their life? much like we'd grow for the first 20 to 30% of our lives. Again, that's somewhat speculative, but what's interesting is immediately after the flood, we see that the age of man within four generations is cut in half, within 10 generations was cut down to 20%. So immediately after the flood, things changed drastically. What do we see today? Animals are significantly smaller today after the flood. They were significantly larger before the flood. I just extrapolate that out and think it's possible. So I think, and again, this is just personally my opinion, that the Nephilim was a reference to those giant human beings, most men that lived pre-flood, before the whole entire environment changed, before animals began to decrease in size, before mankind's lives began to get much shorter. And that what Moses is doing is simply saying that the events pre-flood, the wickedness that we saw on earth, happened at a time that people would remember from legend, the stories they were told. I had somebody interest, or somebody referenced me one day, said, "Well, maybe that's how Noah was able to build such a big boat." Meaning, significantly bigger, stronger, might not have taken quite as many men. Don't know. It's all speculative. But so, as you can see, there's a lot to speculate about here. And I tried to make sure that I help you understand that much of this is speculation for me. But you have to take it as that. So. Who are the sons of God? My personal conviction is that the sons of God were angels that had left their abode, possessed human beings, and began to take advantage of women. Who are the Nephilim? I believe they it's simply a reference to giants, mankind who lived pre-flood. And that's why after the flood, we still have some giants, but they gradually died out, much like bigger animals die out. So that's my gut. Take it for what it is. But now we get to the... What we really want to talk about. How does anything that we see here represent the gospel? So, the remaining verses here are going to tell us three things. What God saw, what God felt, and what God determined to do about it. So what did God see? You'll notice in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what God saw was that the earth was filled with wickedness. It says every intent, every intent of the thoughts of mankind's heart was only evil continually. See those three words? Every intent was only. There wasn't a single good intent. And it was that way continually. Every thought they had was continually wicked. Notice down in verse 11 and 12 that every, all flesh... And then even the earth itself had become totally corrupt. Look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. Look at verse 12. And God saw that the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. What God saw when he looked at the earth was absolute, total, complete corruption, wickedness, and evil. So much so... Estimates of the pre-flood population range everywhere from 700 million to 20 billion people. Nobody knows. If we just look at rates of growth today, it's probably in the billions range. But again, estimates range anywhere from 700 million to maybe 200 billion, or 20 billion people that lived on the earth before the flood. And when God looked down at those people, he saw one man and his wife who were not wicked who are not corrupt. One man and one wife. Now we know, Noah hasn't had children yet. hasn't had his kids yet. Those come during the 120 years after God called him. So think about that for a second. Even if the smaller estimate is true, 700 million people, and only two people, God can look upon and say they are righteous. Now it only mentions Noah here, but we know Noah's wife must have been righteous because she got to go on the ark two people out of 700 billion makes it even worse if it's two people out of 20 billion that's what God saw when he looked upon the earth so what did he feel when he saw that I think it's important because the scripture tells us here what God felt what he sensed twice in this passage it says that God was sorry some of your translations may say regretted look back at verse 6 The Lord was sorry that he made man on earth. And he was grieved in his heart. Look down at the end of verse 7. He says, For I am sorry that I have made them. It's hard for us to imagine God feeling sorry or regretting something because generally being sorry for something or regretting doing something is because we've made a mistake. But that's not the case with God. In fact, sorrow and grief doesn't require that you have made a mistake does it because you can feel sorrow and grief when you see things you don't have to have made a mistake and so when we see god here saying i'm sorry that i made man it doesn't mean to be screwed up this is definitely an emotional word just as grieved is it says he was grieved in his heart which reflects emotional pain look at psalm chapter 78 Psalm chapter 78, verse 40. He's talking about Israel. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and, look at this, and grieved him in the desert. God was grieved by Israel's sin. In the same way that he was grieved by the sin of mankind before the flood. Isaiah chapter 63. Turn there. Isaiah 63.10 says the same thing. But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore He turned Himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. So we have at least three references here to the Lord being grieved or being sorry over what mankind had become. We're also warned in Ephesians chapter 4.30, aren't we? says that we're not supposed to grieve the Holy Spirit by our own sin. God can be grieved. God can feel sorrow. And that's exactly what he felt when he looked down at mankind. Again, that's kind of a hard principle for us to accept and understand, but think about it. Jesus himself wept. Did he not? We have to understand that our emotion, our ability to feel sorrow and grief comes because we are made in God's image. He can grieve. He can feel sorrow, which is why we can grieve and why we can feel sorrow. And so as God looked down upon his creation, he was grieved at what he saw by the absolute total corruption of his creation and what it had become. Now, I don't believe that his grief was simply a matter of what he saw there, but partly because of what he was now needing to do. Because the very next thing we see, we saw what God saw, we saw what God felt, and now we're going to see what God determined to do about it. And I believe that that was partly what was driving his grief and his sorrow. There are two things that God determined to do, and the first one is that he determined to judge the world. Look back at verse 3, chapter 6. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. Learn here that God had reached the limit of His patience. God's patience is not unlimited. He is very patient. He is long-suffering. He has divine forbearance, but there is a time when God's patience finally runs out, and He has to judge. Notice here that He says He would no longer strive with man forever, and He puts a time on it: 120 years. That is not a reference to how long man's going to live. That's the amount of time between God's announcement and when He will bring the flood. Mankind had 120 years before God would bring the flood. Why do you suppose God waited 120 years? What do we know about God when he brings about judgment? What's that? He is long-suffering. He always gives opportunity for repentance. Always gives opportunity for repentance. This is their opportunity for repentance. In fact, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. So Noah did more than just build a boat. Noah preached about righteousness. And I would imagine that many of those around Noah heard Noah warn them about God's wrath and his judgment and what they were about to face. Nobody took him up on it. But for 120 years, God was still patient, waiting to bring about his judgment, wondering if any, well, probably not wondering, but giving a man an opportunity to repent. He says the reason he did this was because man is flesh, which is likely a reference to the infallibility, or I mean the infallibility of mankind and their propensity to sin. In other words, by calling them flesh, what God was saying is, they are always going to be bent on sin. This is what they are like. And as God looked down at his creation, at that moment he recognized the only thing to do was to judge. They would not change their hearts. They would not turn back. They would not repent. That's when God brings his judgment. Did you ever think about that? God brings his judgment when there's absolute refusal to repent. If there's even the glimmer of hope that you might repent, God waits. He gives you opportunity. Even Peter in his day, when they were saying, well, where is Jesus? How come he didn't come back yet? And Peter says, what, you think that he's... <laughs> he's waiting because he's patient. He's long-suffering, wanting all men to repent. He doesn't want any to perish. That's why he's waited. That's one of my big issues when I hear people talk about "Ah, you know, Jesus Jesus is on a comeback right now today and I think wow you realize that yeah that would be great for us because he rescues us but it is horrible for everybody else do you realize that when Jesus Christ raptures the church his wrath begins and he will pour that out and there is no more opportunity for repentance in fact if my understanding and what we shared here about teaching through the, the book of Revelation I think God's wrath lasts about 30 days It is rapid and total. And he waits until nobody is willing to repent. In fact, that is repeated in the book of Revelation that no matter what happened on earth, they refused to repent and God finally brings his judgment. So here we're told that God had determined what he would do was to bring about judgment. But he still gave time for repentance. I don't know that it would have taken Noah 120 years to build a boat. In fact, it took him about 75 if we understand some of the stuff correctly. But that time was ultimately a time of repentance. We get a picture of God's universal nature of judgment here. Look at verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And judgment would involve wiping out every, or actually nearly every living thing that dwelt on the earth. Didn't I would imagine, we know fossil, we know fish and Others died in the flood too but not all of them because we have it in the fossil record but the reality of it is anything that breathed there on this earth literally on the earth meaning on the land God wiped out except for Noah and the animals that he took on the ark and his family. Verse 13 we kind of learn that pretty much everything. The end of all flesh has come before me. We know from the next couple of chapters that God would accomplish this through the flood. It was devastating. Horrifying complete and total destruction that's the wrath of God it's a glimpse of what will happen ultimately at the end of time when God pours out his wrath he's promised not to do the flood again um, but it doesn't mean he won't judge the earth we know that he will so some would call actions here a bit of an overreaction cruel or wicked but I would argue this that what we see here is that what God poured out in terms of wrath matched what we saw in mankind It was equivalent for what we see in mankind. Total, absolute corruption. But we also know that he did it as an example. When he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he says he did it as an example for those who would live ungodly lives afterwards. So the flood here is to serve ultimately as an example of what happens when mankind is left to his own ways, ignores God. Now, that's the first thing God did, was he determined to bring about his judgment. And there's all kinds of passages we could turn to Here in a moment, that tell us that he does not take any pleasure in doing that. So, the second thing that God determined here, the second thing God determined at the flood was that it wasn't going to stop with judgment, but that instead he would provide a way of salvation. Look at verses 8 through 10. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and so we see all of that. But then we notice that here, he specifically chose Noah for salvation. And we know the rest of the story, where he had a big boat built for Noah and his family, and to rescue the animals. God provided a means of salvation and rescue for mankind. I want to return turn here, but... Ezekiel chapter eighteen verse twenty-three, verse thirty-two, even thirty-three eleven, says that God takes no pleasure in destroying mankind or bringing about judgment. Second Peter chapter three verse nine: the Lord is not slow about His promise. We already referenced this as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. First Timothy chapter two, verses three and four. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We all know John 3, 16 and 17, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. What is the point of those passages? God takes no pleasure in having to judge but he has to because he's righteous. And so what we see here in the flood at least in the announcement of what he's going to do here, is he provides a means to escape that judgment. That is the way God is. So what's our takeaway from all this? When we started this series, we said that we would look for glimpses of the gospel in each one of these events. Does anybody see that here? Uh, One of the things I love about going down to the ark, I've been down there four times now, they've got this giant door. The door to the ark. And some of you have been there. What's superimposed on that door? big cross and it's really kind of neat how they do it because it's kind of like just some light on it but they, they equate the door to the ark like Jesus Christ being the door to salvation I love that picture everybody wants to get their pictures taken by it except for my family because we went and they went no we don't need that <laughs> I think it was crowded and they didn't want to have to wait I want to just give you a little bit of a quick analogy here um, the flood really teaches us about the gravity of sin the need for God's judgment but it also teaches us about the depth of his love and the promise of salvation Um, the same is true about the gospel if you think about it it reveals the gravity of God's justice the gospel isn't just about salvation it's about what happens from sin and so it teaches us about the gravity of of sin and the gravity of God's justice the the depth of his love though too willing to send his own son to die for us and it reveals the promise of salvation. If you think about it, what's really cool as you have, and again it's a bit of an analogy, you have God saved them physically through one man and a wooden ark. And then you come to the cross, and what do you find? That God saved us spiritually through one man and a wooden cross. The picture is pretty stark. And so I think our takeaway from this is when we look at this, and as Dustin will will do in the next couple of weeks, or he'll do next week, as he talks about the flood, and then I'll talk about um, the gospel found in the rainbow afterwards, is this is probably the greatest picture we have or allusion to the gospel so far in Genesis. Because there's so many pieces that sort of you can take the, the story of the flood and, and the, the salvation through Noah and take the, the gospel and almost look at him as shadows cover one over the top of the other they match so closely and so we get this amazing picture here of, of God grieving over our sin having to judge that sin but then even in that we see his, his um, willingness to be patient to bring about repentance and then ultimately even providing a means of salvation Amen?